Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Thanks, Pete. You stole my final line, Jesus is the reason for the season. How are we doing? All right. It's cold up here with all these icicles. Well, today, as as Pete said, we're pivoting towards Christmas. Happy Advent Sunday. This is Advent Sunday. Um, I know Christmas can be a little bit of a divisive subject. Um, So I've come up with a a very scientific way of just gauging the enthusiasm in the room for Christmas, if you will uh, humor me for a moment. So over at this end of the scale, we're going to have a scale along the stage here. This is kind of like Buddy the Elf territory. So you get a surge of excitement when you see that first Starbucks Christmas cup. You sing joy to the world all the year round. You put your tree up before December. Is this, give me, give me like a, a whoop, a clap, a sort of shout. Are you, who's in this? All right, a little bit, yeah, right. This is one extreme to be clear. My wife and children are over there somewhere. As we come into the middle, this is probably most of us, you're kind of like, bit of extra time off work, school, some extra food, a few extra movies. Is that anyone in there? Yeah, all right. There must be a load waiting for this end, which is good news for me. This is sort of Grinch territory. Um, You essentially think that Christmas has become a pseudonym for a consumer capitalist conspiracy to keep you dulled in your thinking, trapped into excessive expenditure of resource, and blind to the darkness that is going on in the world and in our own hearts. Is that, is that, anyone? All right, okay. Well, that's great. That that makes my job very easy today because, um, I, uh, I, I sort of happily or maybe unhappily sit more on that end of the, the scale. But wherever you are on my uh, spectrum of Christmas enthusiasm today, I hope that this will help you launch into Advent. Um, Advent, of course, can just be a simple and fun exercise of counting down the days to Christmas. I've got a slide coming up here with some, uh, some things that you might think of when you think of Advent. You've obviously, Advent calendars. Um, four candles. Did anybody grow up in a sort of more traditional church? You get the four candles. I, of course, couldn't say four candles without immediately triggering the two Ronnies in my head. Four candles. You know, it's a, I'm so not of my generation. Can't beat the two Ronnies. Um, we've got we've got choirs. Extra. You get, like whoever sings in a choir at Christmas. Maybe you wouldn't usually do that throughout the year. They would get sort of special services and, and music. And of course, uh, Home Alone. Uh, some Christmas movies. These are the sort of things you may associate with Advent. But Advent, I want to try and tease out today, is so much more than just a countdown to Christmas. It's actually this very special season in the church calendar. And I think the point is to not rush to Christmas, but to sit in what Advent is. And Advent just means the arrival of someone. And the church throughout history has celebrated two arrivals. The first is the birth of Jesus Christ and his first coming to us through the Virgin Mary in a little town called Bethlehem 2,000 years ago in darkness and in dirt, the incarnation. The second arrival leaps across time and anticipates his second coming in glorious majesty when he is revealed as the rightful ruler of the cosmos. And at that point, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. These are the two Advents that we celebrate and we find ourselves somewhere here in the middle. And I wonder if another helpful way to think about this is between these two great Advents that frame 
our lives. There's also a lot of little in-between Advents that we each need. In a way, it's brilliant that it happens once a year. It's almost like the Lord knows we need to dwell on this. And this in-betweenness that we find ourselves in, I think, is a really helpful way of actually just thinking about what Advent means. And Advent, to me, means a season of paradox because we live between the light and the dark. We live between the past and the future. We live in times of waiting and in times of consolation. We wait sometimes in emptiness, but sometimes in fulfillment. Advent properly observed is a season of patient and expectant waiting, where we live with an awareness of these many tensions in which our lives occur. And it offers us a chance to reflect more fully on these tensions than we sometimes are inclined to the rest of the year. As I was um, thinking about this talk and how to kick us into Advent, I kept hearing the first four lines of that Charles Wesley hymn. I say hymn because Carl is a difficult word for me to say in Surrey. Um, <laughs> Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. And this is a beautiful hymn for the start of Advent because it names that there are fears and there are sins that we must be set free from. We must have a firm grasp on those things, on the reality of our situation before we can get to the Merry Christmas part. The great preacher Fleming Rutledge, uh, she wrote an amazing book on Advent and she actually sees Advent as an opportunity to press into that darkness. She says, Advent is the season that when properly understood does not flinch from the darkness that stalks us all in this world. Advent then, I want to suggest, is a time to sit with the longings and the brokenness that we all have, that we all experience. And instead of kind of drifting anaesthetized towards another Christmas, press in with fresh hope and expectation for the hope of Christmas morning. Does that sound helpful? That's the backdrop I just want to lay out before we read today's scripture passage. Uh, and what I've done is I've pulled a few different chunks from the, the Gospel of John here, and I think you'll see why I've chosen these ones as we go on. So if you're able, would you like to stand with me as I read from the Scripture? Let's just take a moment in quiet to still our hearts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I'm going to skip to John 3 now. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is the word of the Lord. Grab your seats. The opening of John 1, of course, one of the most beautiful and theologically rich passages in the Bible. And John 3.16, a verse I think better known than anything else in the whole Bible. And yet one that we often don't hear in the whole context, that conversation that's going on between Jesus and Nicodemus, the Pharisee. And these passages, I think you'll notice, have a recurring theme. They, they talk a lot about light. And they talk a lot about darkness and and light and darkness are very common metaphors throughout scripture and in the New Testament, particularly in um, John's writing. Um, Light is, is used always to indicate goodness and beauty and truth and it's always associated with God. Darkness, on the other hand, is used to indicate death and corruption, suffering and evil. And that's the domain of the the, the world, the flesh and the devil, right? Darkness is always on that side of things and light is always on God's side. And if I may be so bold, I want to say the Bible is pretty unsentimental when it comes to naming this stuff. Because what the Bible does is it looks deeply into human misery, human folly, human pain, human need, and just plain old human disappointment. And it says it like it is, and it says all is not well. And there's more. It doesn't prescribe positive thinking, and it doesn't recommend self-help. It just tells us the truth of the human condition. And if you or someone you know has had a sort of symptoms and you've been unable to identify what's going on, you will know that getting a harsh diagnosis that is true is actually kinder than getting a vague diagnosis that does nothing to cure you. Does anybody know that to be the truth? A harsh diagnosis that is true is actually better than a vague diagnosis that doesn't help you. And so in Jesus and in scripture as a whole, we we are sat down, we're looked in the eye and we are told things like they are. Tell it to me straight, (laughs) I say. And so if we look at these different areas, I think we all know that this is the case, that our our situation can be pretty dire, human need to look at that. Um, Of course, we could talk about there's so much need in the world, but I thought it would be more impactful to just talk about our own doorstep. The BBC published an article this week that says 24% of adults will struggle to afford Christmas in in the means of sort of doing anything extra in the way of food or presents or heating. That's one in four adults will struggle to do anything extra at Christmas. And our own Christmas kindness Uh, project that we've been running. We've had 1,100 children in the local area referred to us who are from families in need this Christmas, and we're expecting more referrals to still come in. 
Guildford Action, a wonderful local charity based up near Waitrose. They currently have 300 men and women on their books in the local area uh, with a whole range of, of great need, hunger and homelessness chief among them. But some of them come in with medical conditions such as trench foot because of the lack of access to even basic things like uh, properly sized footwear. This is happening in Guildford in 2023 on our doorstep. There is great human need in the world. And if we think about pain and disappointment, again, there's so many ways that I could talk about this, but one that struck me was I was thinking about the collective that Andrea and I co-lead with uh, Matt and Julia, who have vacated the room, I see. Um, I thought that'd be a nice sort of moment of bonding. Like, <laughs> um, But we've been leading our, our collective with them for uh, just over a year now, and, and our collective has six families in it. And we're all sort of early to mid-30s. Um, Andre, who I don't think in this room, he's our sort of honorary older member at, at 40. What was he, 43? I don't know. He's the old man of the group. But we're collectively not that old. And um, over the past year, whenever we have a, a session where we don't, we're not following a sermon and we have sort of open time, what we've been doing is inviting someone in the group to just share their story. And we have a really vulnerable group, which I think every collective likes. So one of the keys is that it has to be a place where you can actually talk honestly with one another. And uh, so we've had about half the group over the past year share their story, their testimony in as much detail as they want to. And it's been really beautiful. It's been a really bonding thing to do as a group. But what has really taken me aback is like even from those six people that have shared relatively young as they are, the amount of pain and trials of many kinds and grief and trauma that we've experienced collectively is pretty staggering. It's really given me pause for thought, disappointment, and pain are very real. Uh, Philip Yancey says that the main emotion of the modern adult who has all the advantages of wealth, education, and, and culture is disappointment. Uh, and so even in just the humdrum of life, you might be perfectly successful and have all the stuff outwardly that makes for a happy life, and yet disappointment is still the dominant emotion. Do you, do you ever get that feeling? I always find that on New Year's Eve, you know, you sort of build up to these things, and then in the actual moment, you kind of feel a little bit let down. Does anyone yeah, resonate with that? Christmas morning's a little bit like that as you grow older, because you go from being the sort of the focus of all the present buying to, to being the one who just sort of, all right, I've got kids now, I don't get anything anymore, that's fine, you know. Um, that's a very subtle kind of disappointment. Since we're on that subject, have you seen those like craft beer advent calendars? It's not too late if you want to. Um. <laughs> but a lot of that disappointment, pain, the stuff that you even in our collective, it's just the stuff that you go through as being a human on this planet. It's not stuff that is even actively caused by others. Some of it, it's just the, 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 the reality of living in a fallen world. But more than that, then we can push into human folly. And uh, this is the pain that we actually cause to one another. And again, uh, I think we all know that this is a very uh, big reality in our world. And of course, we could talk through all the obvious things, lying, lusting, whatever it might be. But almost to just step back from that and look at it as a whole, when the Bible talks about sin, and that is the word that scripture uses, it isn't just talking about those bad sort of isolated actions that we may do. Sin really on the whole is this sense of ignoring God in the world that he has created, like living in rebellion simply by living without reference to him. I will decide exactly how I live my own life. Thank you very much is kind of the, the hallmark of this. Who knows what the first commandment is? It's not a rhetorical question. You shall have no other God before me, right? 
And in a way, the other nine are all footnotes to that one because God knows we need to put him first in order for everything else in our life to work out in a way that actually leads us into the light. But we live in self-defining entitlement so much of the time. We put ourselves and what we want first and we often don't think of God and of others. And in a way, that is the, the darkness that exists in, in every human heart just simply is, is always trying to get your needs met before the needs of others. And then to zoom out from the individual, when we look at it collectively, um, how dark does the world feel right now? And the thing is, it's not consigned to history, right? I, I grew up in, you know, sort of like the world wars or something. It sort of feels like ancient history. And there's, oh, there's a few skirmishes around the world. But I feel like collectively as a species, we're sort of moving on. Is that the case now in 2023? There's obviously always been wars, but how loud have they become on our news feeds in the past 18 months or so? There is so much suffering in the world. One writer who, who was looking back on the 20th century, an era of technological advancement, scientific progress, and yet the deadliest uh, century on record in the way of war and, and genocide, he said, instead of a growing enlightenment, it feels like we are living through an endarkenment. And so I want to tell you today, you cannot trust, as Pete said earlier, you cannot trust in politics to save your soul. Whoever you think should be prime minister or president or whatever it might be, they might make two degrees difference. Who knows? They will not save your soul. Their party will not solve what's going on in the human heart. I'm really uh, interested in the poet W.H. Auden at the minute. I'm sure some of you are familiar with him. He was described by some as the greatest mind of the 20th century, a really, really articulate, deep-thinking man, but who lived a difficult life. And in the 1930s, Auden was a young man and he was seen as kind of a, uh, as embodying sort of progressive left ideals. He wasn't a politician, he was a poet, and yet he embodied many of those ideals. And yet as he grew older, I read this about him this week, it says he grew disillusioned with politics as a remedy for the human condition, returning to the Anglican faith of his childhood as a personal compass. Here's this man, one of the greatest minds of the last century, who tried all of these different political ideologies and came to the conclusion that none of them were actually going to solve what is going on in the human heart. That's politics. We could look at technology. I think another great lie that we need to be careful about, and we have many people in this church who work for big tech companies, and of course we embrace technology. It is improving lives around the world. There is much to be grateful for, but let us never fall for the lie that it's going to save us or change the problem that is going on embedded in the chest of every human on this planet. It will not save us. Another one I think, and I, of course I could pick from a long list here of things that humans have tried to, uh, to uh, embrace to save themselves. I think another one in our day is psychology. I think you know, we're grateful, we know so much more about the human brain and how it works and we have great counselors and therapists. But there is a lie I think that can gain traction that is if everybody just sorted out their own stuff and went and saw a therapist, then we'd all be, we'd all be in a good place and we'd treat each other better. That's a lie. It's not going to work. And of course, that's not me poo-pooing that. It's like, Go and, get, go and see a therapist if you need one. There are, um, it, it's a great, great thing to do. But do not fall for the lie that politics, technology, psychology, this stuff will not change what has gone wrong in the human heart. And it's very easy to fall for that lie. We cannot save ourselves. And so the Advent season, properly understood, is actually designed to help us appreciate and understand this in darkenment. And if we embrace Advent correctly, I think it can strengthen us for life in this world 
and give us a moment in the year to objectively look at all of these things and acknowledging that they cannot save us and that there are malignant forces at work working against our well-being and against the divine purposes of God. And I think it's only possible um, to, to shift to the Merry Christmas part when we have sat in this part for a little moment. First, anything else is just wallpapering over the cracks. You can send cards and sing carols and buy turkeys, but if you do not understand the darkness around us and within us, then you do not understand Merry Christmas. Advent always begins in the dark. But there is a but. You'll be pleased to know. And we find it revealed in the story that the Bible tells us. The diagnosis is worse than you realize, but the solution is better than you can possibly imagine. See, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. And so we read in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He has come into the world as light. Suddenly in the black, a light is switched on. And I love that verse a little bit later that says, darkness cannot overcome it. The light has come and darkness cannot overcome it. Our God, I think this is another Charles Wesley, our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. The hands that flung stars into space, that spoke the world into being, that shaped mountains, right? The source of all goodness and truth and beauty limits himself, Philippians 2 says, that he emptied himself to become like one of us. And suddenly he submits himself, the word of God, right? Submits himself, allness everywhere, submits to becoming a seed in the womb of a woman. This is the story that's going on behind the story. Israel, of course, at this point had lived under the oppression, subjugation of empires much bigger and more powerful than they. Many had given up on the hope of the promised Messiah. And yet God is working behind what looks like happening on the surface. And he knows that we need a solution because we cannot save ourselves. We need a God who can understand the darkness, not just understand it conceptually, but experience it and come in among us and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And this is the story of Jesus. He becomes one of us and all that that means, he knew loneliness, he knew rejection, he knew disappointment, he knew suffering. This is the miracle of the incarnation that the God of the universe becomes one of us and experiences everything that we go through. And he faces all of the trials and the temptations that we face, and yet he resists. He remains righteous, and so righteousness enters the world. The church father, Athanasius, in the fourth century, he, uh, he's kind of credited with a lot of the, 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 the theology that we believe about Jesus and what happened in the incarnation. He wrote this work called On the Incarnation. If you're interested in this part, I'm doing a theology night on the 12th over in Founders Studio. Come along. Um, but he has this idea that you know God became man so that man can become God. And of course, he doesn't mean that literally that we become God. But what he means is that not only does God come down to us, but in doing so, he elevates us. And we have the opportunity now to step in to the divine life. How beautiful. And this baby Jesus was born and he was ignored by most of the world. He was born in utter anonymity to most of the people that were alive at the time. 
To some people, he was received with murderous rage. Think of Herod, who saw any Messiah as a threat to his power. But by a very, very small few, this baby was received as heaven come to earth. And they realized God has come among us, not the other way around. We could not do this for ourselves, and so he has done it for us. It is his movement, his action, his purpose, his promise fulfilled in the infant Jesus C.S. Lewis talked about, um, there's a story, um, I'm, I'm lifting this straight from Tim Keller unashamedly, but there's um, a Russian cosmonaut, the first man who went into space, um, and you know, atheism was the sort of uh, dominant belief system in the Soviet Union at the time. He goes into space, the first man into space comes back, and he says, I went to space and I did not see God. And this is sort of, you know, conclusive proof, if you like. And of course, wonderful C.S. Lewis, come on was still writing, this was in the 1960s, and he says, you can't, ex- you can't expect to meet someone on the, on the second floor when you live on the first floor. And talks about, you know, God, God is not like one of us, right? He, he exists outside of time and space. He is not limited in the way that we are. And so C.S. Lewis said this, I think this is beautiful. The only way Hamlet can meet Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes himself into the story. And that's what happens in the incarnation. God steps into the story. He inserts himself, and not just in a vague kind of semi-way where he just sort of appears like, hello, I'm here. He becomes a baby. Like, he, you know, Andrea and I were, were waiting a few more weeks on the arrival of our, our third and final um, <laughs> baby. And, and any of you who have held a newborn baby, you know how precious and beautiful and miraculous that child is, but you also see how fragile and how vulnerable and how utterly helpless that baby is. And the God of the universe submits himself to that. Isn't that astonishing? This is the beauty of the incarnation. And Jesus, as he grows up and he becomes a great teacher, one of the things that he says, you know, so that the scripture talks about him being the light of the world. Well, in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus actually turns to his followers, those who believe in him and follow him. He says, you are the light of the world. And this is what happens when you enlist in the Jesus army. You actually have the light that he has birthed inside of you. And so wherever Christians are, there is that light also. And so to circle back on some of the darkness that I laid out pretty bluntly earlier, we can see this light at work. So of those 1,100 children that have been referred to us they're coming to Guildford and to Woking and to Aldershot. Their parents are given the opportunity to pick out toys and clothes and books. They're given the dignity of choosing presents for their own children so that they can have a special Christmas. Eric sent this to me. On top of that, we're sending parcels to 250 refugees, care packages to young adult care leavers, care packages and food hampers to sheltered housing for elderly and vulnerable people, hampers to schools, food hampers to hundreds of vulnerable residents. Overall, we are aiming to support 4,000 people this Christmas. That is the light pushing back the darkness. Would it be easier not to do all of that and just enjoy our own Christmas? Of course it would, but we have the light of Jesus inside of us, and so we feel the call to push back the darkness. This church is a growing light in Guildford and in Woking and in Aldershot. I joined this community at 19 and there was about 30 of us. I'm 32 now and we have four congregations in three towns. Our staff team is about the size that the church was when I joined it. Like the light is growing in Guildford and in Woking and in Aldershot as we come, as we submit ourselves to community, to worship, to the word and to acts of service in our area. The light is growing 
some of the other testimonies from the lighthouse. I thought this was um, funny. Eric didn't know I was going to talk about light and darkness, but he sent me some testimonies that people have sent in. Listen to this first one. Thank you so much. I am very grateful for you looking after me so well, and I can see light ahead of me. I was so isolated, and now I feel I am in a community that cares. A few more, just because these are so moving. Coming here brought me back into the world. I was really not very happy. Then someone told me about the lighthouse, and it changed my life. I have never felt loved in my whole life, but since coming to Nurture and to the lighthouse, I have experienced love, and now I know that I matter. The light is pushing back the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. When we think about all of the war and the, the, the suffering that is happening in our world right now, I was reminded at the 24-7 gathering just about six weeks ago in Vienna, we had a lady from Kiev, from Ukraine, sharing with us, and she was talking about what's going on there, and of course, much suffering and death and destruction. And then at one point she says, but we think about 70,000 people have become Christians. And there was kind of an interruption, because Carla, who was doing the interview, said, sorry, could you clarify? It sounds like you said 70, like 70,000. And that is what she said. She said 70,000 people. And said, so, well, how, how, how could you possibly know that? And she says, well, we've been giving out Bibles. We've given out 70,000 Bibles. And every time we give out a Bible, we ask the person to pray a prayer to receive Jesus. And not a single person has said no. She said, there are no atheists in Ukraine anymore. This is the story behind the story, right? So we see the death and the destruction on the news. And of course, that is real, and that is part of our call, is to realize that, to work towards peace, and all of that means. But there is also a story behind the story. The light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Light has come into the world. A little later in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And I wonder if you today feel like you're walking in darkness, maybe even partially, maybe there is a lot of light, but there's something in your life that feels like darkness, where you have not seen the light in the life of Jesus Christ. And this is the Advent message that in a world of profound darkness and distress, pervasive sin and evil, we can look to the one true light, Christ Jesus. Son of God. He is the answer to every question. He is the answer to every problem. And so I want to tell you today, happy holidays will not do it for me this year. We don't need happy holidays. We need Merry Christmas. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I wonder if you could stand with me. Maybe get the musicians back up. So I'd love to give you some space now to reflect. We talked about this first Advent when Jesus came as a baby. We talked about the second Advent when he would come back in glory. But all of these little in-between Advents, I want to ask you the question today. What darkness in your life or in your family, what darkness do you need to receive Jesus into today? What darkness do you need to receive Jesus into today?
I'm going to pray in a moment. We're going to have some people coming forward, our prayer team. We've got other leaders and elders down here that would love to pray with you. And we've got a little bit of time and we'd love to just create some space now for you to receive this light. We love to pray with one another. We know that something happens when we lay hands on one another. We ask to be filled with the Spirit of God. And so I urge you today, if you have resonated with this, whether it's for the first time or the 500th time, receive the light of the world into your heart today, into your darkness today. O come thy day spring from on high and cheer us by your drawing nigh, disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. Lord Jesus Christ, light of the world, we receive you now in this Advent season. We thank you that you came to be one of us. You submitted yourself to a body and to all that it means to be human. And we thank you that one day you will come back in glorious majesty. But we also ask, Lord, now in this tension, in this paradox that we live in, in the middle, would you come into our hearts and into our lives today? Fill us with your light. If the prayer team would like to come forward just so people know where you are.